Welcome to the Return to the Forgotten Path podcast. Join us on this journey to travel to a forgotten pathway that leads to rest and restoration. This podcast is a weekly Bible study of this week's Torah portion, known as a Parsha. It's a weekly reading according to the Jewish annual Torah cycle. Every week, we will have a discussion filled with both historical and cultural viewpoints as it pertains to the return to the forgotten path that is increasingly happening all around the world. We will review and share opinions from the weekly Torah, also known as the five first books of the Bible or the Mosaic Law. We will also do readings from the Haftorah and the Brit Hadashah or the New Testament text. For those who ask, what is the forgotten path? Jeremiah 6.16 puts it like this. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Our podcast seeks to point our listeners to that ancient old path through the study of the Bible from the perspective of the Torah, which is properly translated as instructions. The blessing before Torah study. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat shalom, y'all. The Torah portion for this week is Vayikra, and he called. The Torah portion comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 1. Yes, we're starting a new book. Through chapter 5, verse 26. The Haftorah is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 21, through chapter 44, verse 23. And the gospel portion, the Brit Hadashah, is also from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 23 through 30. For those of us joining, reading Hebrews for Christians, the Haftorah portion also has an additional reading for Samuel 15, 2 through 34 as well as the Brit Hadashah portions, Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, and Hebrews 13, 10 through 15. Because this is also Shabbat Zakor, which is the Sabbath of remembrance, we also read a special Maftir reading from Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19. Thank you. Thank you. For a quick overview of this portion, it is the beginning of the book of Leviticus. And as many of us know, it is going to be predominantly concerned with the rituals and the sacrifices and the laws that the priests had to follow. An older Hebrew name for the book was the laws of the priesthood. In Judaism today, it's referred to by the name Vayikra, which means, and he called. Vayikra is the first Hebrew word of the book, which begins by saying, And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from inside the tent of meeting. Leviticus describes the sacrificial service and the duties of the priests. It also introduces ritual purity, the biblical diet, the calendar of appointed times, laws of holiness, and laws related to redemption, vows, and tithes. In addition, this book discourses on ethical instruction and holiness, this reading, Vayikra, is the 24th reading from the Torah and introduces us to the sacrificial services and describes five different types of sacrifices. True. And the Hebrew word for the sacrifices in this Torah portion are called korbans, or gifts, or offerings. And so as we begin to uncover these gifts or offerings, um, one may find that the reading of them um, is very repetitive. So as we're reading the first few lines, um, consider looking for the parallels. Uh, Where have we heard this before? And how is this parallel to what we have discovered spiritually about what the Lord is sharing in these offerings or gifts? All right, fantastic. So I'm gonna read the first few verses And then we're going to just bring out a couple of parallels together so we can open our eyes to where we've seen it before and some 
additional insight behind it. So, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So that's the first five verses. One thing that caught my attention from the beginning and additional study helped to reveal in the prior Torah portion as they were ending the book of Exodus and the Mishkan was being built, Moses couldn't get inside the tent of meeting. If you remember, he helped to assemble the tabernacle, everything was erected, and the Spirit of the Lord filled the place. Moses couldn't get into the tent. It was so filled with the presence of the Most High God, that he was literally outside while this cloud filled the space. So now when you come into this new chapter and the Lord calls Moses and speaks to him from the attendant and says, hey, come on in. This is an invitation to draw even closer. So now as we're thinking on these sacrificial offerings and we're starting to study these different offerings, realize that the portion of all of the the purpose of all of these is to draw closer to Adonai if you had to if you were bringing a uh, burnt offering an Ola offering an offering that was to be totally consumed upon the altar or you were bringing an offering because of guilt or unintentional sin or a peace offering all of this is to remove aught um Separation. Separation, whether it was between you and your fellow man or in case of a sin that was unintentional, something between you and God. And saying, hey, you know, I don't want this between us. So this sacrifice is going to remove that separation, which is what you see in verse 3 and 4, where you bring this burnt offering, you bring a male without blemish, you lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering so that uh, I wish I had a better phrase for it, but sin transfers from you to the animal and the animal is able to make atonement for you. Yeah, they called it a pitiate. Uh, I think that's the right word. And the uh, Jewish, um, in a safara.org, safaria.org, uh, every time that that transfer happened, um, they would call that transfer the pitiate. And I guess it's an old English word but um, it seems exactly what you're saying. It, it's a transfer of, and it, I, we talked about this earlier today where we were saying that it's also a transfer to as well in terms of the nature of the act of having to kill the animal itself. You're participating in, mm -hmm. in its slaughter, even though you are not the priest that is going to prepare the offering, so to speak. Right. So there's a lot of consciousness happening here. You're realizing that you committed this error. You realize there's some separation between you and your fellow man or you and God. And now you've got to go find an animal. Make sure it's without blemish. Bring it to the tent of meeting and then lay your hand on this animal. This is not a action that's done without any forethought. There's a lot of consideration being brought into this and especially if you're finding an animal that you helped to raise or whatever from your farm you're very conscious about this life that's about to be taken in your place i was just gonna add that i just found the exact word it's called e it's spelled e-x-p-i-a-t-i-o-n expiation expiation mm. so that's a five dollar word I've for never real used. <laughs> expiation so Every single time that you are participating in the act, you are, um, by virtue of transfer of what you raised, what you now have to bring as a draw near gift, um, you are 
participating in, in its slaughter, but also in the transfer of the guilt or the um, repair of the breakdown by giving the gift. I love it. You know, one of the things that I kind of, you know, whenever I used to think about these korban, korbanos, my, in my ear, I would hear my grandmother. She had a way of repeating like certain um, lines from scripture. And when we were kids, we used to think it funny that she would constantly say, the wages of sin is death. <laughs> the wages of, you know, but, and we, re we recognized it because she made us to memorize those scriptures so we knew the end tale of what she was saying you know but the wages of sin is death but the gift of god is eternal life through yeshua jesus christ as we called it back then our lord and what we recognize by the concept or the the re repetitiveness of her bringing this up when we were making errors is that there is a a, a payment that is required for our willfulness or unwillfulness of you know our sinful acts and she would often bring it up for example let's say for example as kids you may you, kids love to do this all the time you ask them not to or wait until dinner and mm -hmm. they would try to sneak uh, you know she would bring that up you know that's that is simple as a definition of sin that a child can really relate to mm -hmm. you know i heard no or i heard wait and i could not wait and so she's like, you know, you have to recognize that there's a, a weight or a payment for the that not waiting. So even as a child, we understood the weightiness. We thought it was funny because, hmm. <laughs> you know, everything that the old people would say to you sounds, you know, somewhat archaic. But it is very much linked to the means to draw back near. So once if we were to look at it in a different light, how can I now repair the trust that was broken by me not being obedient? You know, when you say something that comes out of your mouth so quickly, but it causes harm, how can I now repair what's already done? And just saying, let's get over it doesn't really get over the fact that there is now separation now. There's uh, that trust has been broken or that, that, that impact has been felt. Hmm. What do you do to reverse that? And that's what's really happening with these korbanos. These five gifts are a means for these ancient kingdoms to, for people that were accustomed to these sacrificial system to learn a different way because the system that was known in other nations did not align itself with what was actually happening in the Levitical system. The Levitical system used the sacrificial system, but not in the same context. And so as we're going through each one, and you know, we're gonna bring up each one as we move forward, that's what we should be also looking at. How did that parallel to the people back then? As much as, why is it not something that we think about in this modern age. Hmm. We go to the laws for grain offerings and chapter two. Well, before you go there, the first one, the first one is called the Ola offering. Right. And I, um, that's chapter one. Are we going past chapter one for a reason? I thought we covered everything you wanted to say there. Oh, no. Um, the Ola offering, what does the Ola offering mean though? Um, we mentioned that in the beginning is something that's fully consumed on the altar. It's that offering is completely burnt up, consumed. There's no part of it that's left behind for the priest to eat a portion of. Mm -hmm. And what, what, how is it different? What is different about it? Because the, there's other offerings that have burnt offerings, but what was different about the Ola specifically that made it, what was, what was the purpose of it? Please share. Um, that's my thing. I, I do find that the, what I understood about the Ola offering is in its offering up, it's much more parallel to what we call surrendering all in what Christianity or pursuing wholeheartedly. Um, it, that is what an Ola really is. It's a fully consumed gift. Um, it is a gift to draw near, but it is one where in our modern age, we don't necessarily understand the weight of surrendering all. Um, for 
the Ola offering to be brought, if you notice the in chapter one, these are not small animals um, that are generally brought as the Ola offering. So even if you were of you know meager means or of, of wealthy means, you were bringing it says you would choose your offering from the herd or from the flock. So it was something that you owned to, that you cared for, that you participated in raising. And so it was a it was a costly gift to surrender that which you've already brought into existence. You you fed, you cared for, you, and it had to be uh, the best, a male without blemish. So the fact that it this offering that had to now be burnt up, it was extremely again valuable. And if you are talking about in our songs. Um, bringing a sacrifice of your heart and we're offering that up you know consume this sacrifice lord is like what the label of many songs sent to read it really is a a total consumption is is it still room of you rolling with your agenda or are you still really uh, operating with a true ola meaning i'm not keeping the best of it for myself but i've completely uh given fully myself over to you and your ultimate rule in my life. Mm. So at, at least that's how I perceived it. All right. I get where you're coming from and all of that. I think very good points to be had on everything you mentioned there. I would say Let's see how it relates to the different types of offerings and let's see how many different parallels we can draw as we discuss the grain offerings and the other ones that are on the list as well. Okay, sounds good. So what's the next offering, chapter two? So chapter two, the grain offering. And you have a few things that are different about it. You've got with the grain offering, the offerings of fine flour. You pour oil in it and frankincense on it. You still bring it to the priests, and then they take a handful of it with the frankincense, the flour, the oil, the frankincense, and then they burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. So it's not totally consumed like it was with the Ola offering that we described in chapter 1. And if you bring a grain offering that's baked in the oven, then it should be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oils or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if it was a grain offering baked on a griddle, it should be fine floured, still unleavened, mixed with oil. Break it in pieces, pour oil on it. If cooking in a pan, similar scenario. So you have a lot of different ways to bring this, but it's the same portion you Take a memorial portion that gets burnt on the altar and the rest of it, Aaron and his sons get to keep. So you can't bring any leaven with it. You can't bring any leaven or any honey as a food offering for the Lord. Leaven, we understand as a standard, uh, what's it called, a symbol for sin. Honey, I'm not sure why that wasn't part of it. I think honey had to do with the fact that you didn't, participate in its creation whereas with wheat the finest wheat you had to raise it you had to mill it you had to you know prepare it and then you still have to prepare the offering for the great offering so i think the reason that you don't have honey is because it's not something that you would have participated in and from what i understood with the minka um i'm reading today from uh Torah online they said it's the it's the one offering that is considered um, prepared by the soul, prepared by the nephesh. Huh. Yeah. So the parsha tells us that they that there were actually five different types of minhag, a minhags, minhagot. Excuse me. The first is composed simply of the uncooked ingredients. Mm-hmm. The four other minhag. Minakot may be prepared in an oven, a griddle, a pan, or a deep pan, depending upon what the donor chooses to bring. Incense was placed on top of the offering just before it was brought to the altar. And whenever a 
burnt offering or an ola or peace offering, the uh, shalim was brought, it was accompanied by the minha. So a meal offering together. However, the minha offering may also be brought as a separate offering altogether. Right. And this happened when a person wished to bring a tribute to God, but could not afford to bring an expensive animal sacrifice. And the Torah therefore allows an alternative to be brought in the form of a less costly meal offering. So again, it's something that you would participate in, a tribute offering. All right. So for the peace offerings, once again, offering an animal from the herd, male or female in this case. Oh, we're going to the next one already. Mm -hmm. Okay, so before we go to the next one, I'm sorry, I didn't explain it, the about the nephesh. So the nephesh, it's used in Leviticus 2 verse 1. It says these words, when a person, literally a soul, the nephesh, presents a meal offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of choice flour. And he shall pour oil in it and lay frankincense thereon. From here, we learn that a voluntary mincha meal offering was most likely to be the gift of a poor person who could not afford anything else. And from all the more value of on the poor person's gift, since the poor person is offering it up with his entire soul. So um, there's a midrash in regards to this uh, um, that relates to this in uh, midrash rabbah. But I was going to bring up the fact that I noticed that the components of the grain offering always included oil. Mm -hmm. And I thought of the um, the oil offering in terms of the many instances in the Brit Hadashah where oil was linked to a source of light. Number one, we saw that in the prior Torah portions for the keeping of the... The menorah. But no... Yeah, the, the menorah. The in the temple. Correct, correct. But it's also likened unto the parables in the Bredha where the oil is... Divergence. Yeah, the, thank you, RJ. The five foolish and the five wise where they, you know, five kept or maintained their oil supply mm -hmm. and five did not. And when the bride crew came, the five that did not was told to go and buy, you know, Go to the, the changers and go get you that oil. And to me, uh, I've seen multiple other occasions in the scripture where this oil is the act of which the Lord utilizes as a means of transfer. If we're going to talk about expiation, transfer of, when he's anointing someone, anointing a king, it's by virtue of the oil blessing. So by you now adding oil to the grain offering it's a, a it's in a in a sense it's like you blessing the lord or you then inviting the spirit of the gift and the gift giver to become one because you're you're mixing them together you know they mentioned the raw ingredients and you're putting the raw ingredients now with the oil in the pan or in the griddle or all of a sudden you are now becoming one and i i shared earlier today that how i saw this as sometimes when I first came into like my spiritual growth period and I started to realize that just because I was taught of God and I was trying to walk out the things of God without the spirit of God, that is likened to having all the right ingredients but no oil. And the act of the indwelling nature of the Holy Spirit in you now empowers you to become the full-fledged tribute. You know, just because I wanted to do it the right thing before, but I lacked the spirit by which would allow me to do it wholeheartedly, not seeking my own will, not seeking my own name, not trying to make a name of my own um, and being right and condescending to a degree to other people. I'm recognizing in humility what was given to me and now I'm walking that out, that gift is that oil that transforms the nature of that drawing near tribute or the korbanot that we are giving in these different capacities. And that's what all I wanted to share regarding the minha. All right. I appreciate the additional insight. That helps as we go to the next one to help to see the threads that are common across all of them and helps to understand why 
this whole book is dedicated to these types of sacrifices and laws. If you can see how they all bring you closer to our creator, then you approach these instructions with a different sensibility, a different urgency, because you realize that we're all separated by sinfulness. And it's only by that repentance and that willingness to run back to our Heavenly Father that we can get back into that close proximity. So a peace offering, obviously, is going to be different than a grain offering or the Ola offering. And in this case, this is, um, once again, an animal from the herd. It can be male or female, still without blemish. You're still laying your hand on the head of the offering and still kill the dangers to the tent of meeting. And then Aaron's sons, the priests, are going to throw the blood against the sides of the altar. Where is this found? This is chapter 3. We're now in chapter 3. Okay. Now, here's the mm, one of the unique aspects of this peace offering. This one, as we talk about it, it's offered as a food offering, but you're offering the fat covering the entrails and the fat that is on the entrails and the kidneys with the fat that's on them and the long lobe of the liver that you are to be removed with the kidneys. That gets burnt on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood with the fire. And same thing if it's an animal from the flock instead of the herd. So sheep or goat or ram, it's all the same instructions going through chapter 3. Still removing the same fat at the tail, cut off close to the backbone, the fat that covers the entrails. And that's being burned as the offering. Same for the goat. Same area, same visceral fat that's being burnt as the offering. And so... All fat is the Lord's. No, I'm sorry, this is verse 16, chapter 3, verse 16. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. So now you look at that and you go, ooh, we may have some trouble here. Because if you think about all the fat that we eat in our lives... When you see you shall eat neither fat nor blood, you're like, wait a minute, how much of our lives are out of order? Doing further study on this, and once again, this is a, uh, not introduction, uh, invitation for everyone to do study on their own so you can know this for yourself to be true. What we found initially is that the fat, that visceral fat, the distinction with that, besides all the fat in other parts of the body, is that that visceral fat around organs is primarily there to trap and pull toxins and poisons away. So if you're eating that, you're eating the the, the poisons, the disease that they were designed to hold and keep away from the body of the animal or you. You know, we've got visceral fat on our system, too. It's... You don't want to eat poison. You, you, you don't want to eat disease. So by God saying, hey, take that, burn that on the altar, and you guys don't eat that stuff, that's the type of fact that he's talking about because of the damage it will do to you. Okay, well, um, the he, uh, not to disagree at all, I just want to read chapter 3, verse 17. Okay. And it says, it is a law for all time throughout the ages in all your settlements. You must not eat any fat or any blood. And the reason that the, this became a point for us to do more study on is because if you've done, you know, any research in terms of cooking and cooking strategies, fat is often used in many cooking strategies. If you were from France, if you were from even the, the Caribbean, we used reuse chicken fat or if you were from any part of the world you've used chicken fat um in terms of blood now um if you were from germany you know of blood sausages if you are from guyana they had blood sausages um so just by virtue of reading this you i'm like okay what does this mean and how wrong have we been in our practices and that's the reason why i did the additional study so the exact English translation, far as I would be, you know, committed to um, at the time when I read it, is like, you must not eat any 
I was like, okay. <laughs> so I was fine with it. But when you go into the Hebrew and you do um, the Hebrew translation, uh, what RJ is saying, and he did find by virtue of study, is that the, the fat there is different than another Hebrew name. So I believe one one name was like the Kalev, which is the, the organ mm-hmm. fat, which in French cooking is called the suet. Just so that you guys are, are aware, if you go back and you see suet, um, that's what that is. So just that's one and the same. So that visceral fat from those organs. You should not be. You should not be eating. Um, and same is true. Or any blood is exactly that or any blood. And that's the reason why kosher meat is killed in such a way that the blood is separated away from the animal to the degree that even the way that our modern systems tend to uh, raise and then slaughter animals, it tends to keep the blood still in the meat. And that blood in the meat actually is toxic to us. Um, There's a whole study on this. And if you want to learn more, there's definitely a lot of sources out there. But if an animal... Um, is afraid before they 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 die, that adrenaline. adrenaline goes throughout their entire system, and if they're not slaughtered correctly, that spike in that hormone is literally dr- still in the flesh of the animal and the animal's blood, and so the ordinances that were directly linked to. This is not talking about what we are going to eat because that's going to happen a little bit later. But what the Lord is laying out for those in covenant with him, it's trying to, again, establish a system by which you are a unique people. You don't operate the same way like others. And definitely the way that you treat animals or the way that you consume an animal is not going to look the same. So I'm certain, and we have historical proof where certain groups of people, namely Jews throughout history, or even the Arabs were considered crazy or an oddity to people from different nations because they wouldn't eat pork or they would not, they would prepare their meat differently or they would you know, cook their food, <laughs> you know, they were considered an oddity. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the nature of, although this is not talking about, again, consumption in this particular scripture, it is incumbent upon us to learn more. And so since we are on this third one, I always like to try to do a little bit of Hebrew study. And this particular offering being the peace offering is the Shalom, Shalom Mani, the Shalom, can you pronounce this for me? Shalamim. The Shalamim. Like Shalom. The heart. Mm -hmm. Shalom. The peace offering. Um, There is a Psalms that is attributed to the peace offering in Psalms 85 that I would like to share. Um, I'll do so after you conclude, please. All right. So as we'll come back to that and talking about the sin offerings in chapter four, going back to the unintentional sin. One thing to point out, and you'll see this going throughout the book of Leviticus, there's no offering for intentional sin. If you go out of your way to go do something knowing full well you're breaking these rules for it, there's nothing. There was then. There was not then. There was not then anything there for that. So that's something to keep in mind as we go through our studies. But this is an unintentional sin. There was something that you shouldn't have done, but you did it. So now you go before, if it's an anointed priest that sins and brought guilt upon all of the people, then he offered for that sin a bull from the herd without blemish as a sin offering. And he goes through the same process. He brings the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting, lays his hand on the head of the bull, kills the bull, takes some of the blood, brings it to the tent, dips his finger and sprinkles part of that blood seven times in front of the veil of the sanctuary. Going back to what we were talking about with the peace offering, the fat of the bull of the sin offering, he removes the fat that covers the entrails and is on the entrails. All of that visceral fat is also removed. The difference here is the skin of the bull and all his flesh 
head, legs, entrails, dung, all the rest of that bull gets carried outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and then gets burnt up completely on a fire of wood. On the ash heap, it shall be burnt up. Now, if the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally and is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do something that ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, once they realize it, once again, going into that we are truly our brother's keeper and we're accountable for one another. We can't, quote-unquote, take the blame for someone else's mistake, but we, if we one falls, we all fall. So we, it's beneficial for us to check one another and speak in love to one another in correction. You know, versus, hey, that's just them. So I ain't got nothing to do with that. Well, to that point, the the this piece, excuse me, the sin offering here, or the hatat, is the missing of the mark. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the things, again, within reading English and reading Hebrew, where we tend to misunderstand. So sin in Hebrew has seven different Hebrew words. And hatat, or the hatat is like, like lowest level. You know, the lowest level sin is the hatat or um it's like shooting your arrow and missing the, the bullseye mm -hmm. so think of it like that if the if the lowest level is one of these seven you know then what happens with the the seventh level um or the seventh degree word for sin and we're not going to do a study in in regards to it but i do desire for our listeners to do some additional study on your own and it's not difficult uh to do so mm -mm. um hatat is spelled ch generally in the english language c-h-a-t-a-t -A -T, or there's a double t in the middle mm -hmm. yeah c-h-a-t-t-a-t -A -T -A -T. you'll find it both ways you'll find it written both ways and you can do a, a quick study on sin in hebrew and you'll find that that's those seven different Hebrew words and what their meanings mean helps one to understand what is described only in English as sin. And in this particular translation of what the Hatat means in terms of us understanding how it happens, think about you just missed, messed up. And how often as a nation do we not mess up? We in, we unintentionally harm each other. We say and do things that we unintentionally think, well, well, that's on you. Imagine how much better our nationhood and our brotherhood would be if we felt that our brother's sin um, bears guilt for the collective, even on the lowest level. Mm -hmm. And so even on this level, it makes me my brother's keeper. Because I do have to be concerned if you are missing the mark. And I'll, I'll be honest with you on this one. This is the most hardest one to, the lowest level sin is the hardest one to deal with. More than the higher level ones or the ones that are more egregious. Mm. Because when you bring it to someone's attention that they did you a hatat, you missed the mark. What you said, it hurt because it felt like this. It tends to be the one that they disregard the most. Or they consider it of, you, you'll live, you know, it's water off a duck's back and all this other stuff. But mm. what you're really doing is you are not honoring or respecting the covenant relationship that we should have as my brother's keeper. I should be concerned and willing to learn from an opportunity where my error has been exposed. My guilt has been made known to me. And unfortunately, as a body of believers, that level of commitment to love our brother as ourselves, we do not do. And so we often tend to throw arrows at each other and do real significant damage and tear apart the community because we don't recognize I should have gone to you directly and maybe made this right. Hmm. That's all I wanted to share in that one. Gotcha. Well, Psalms 85, this is from the prior... Um, Shalom, the Shalom gift. Go for it. Psalms 85 begins, which I thought was very interesting because you'll learn about this in our next um, book. For the leader, a psalm of the sons of Korak. And if you guys know anything about Korak, Korak was 
uh, Moses's, I believe it's his cousin. And he, he basically becomes a leader of, of an insurrection. And so the sons of Korach write this Psalm, Psalms 85. Adonai, you have shown favor to your land. You have restored the, the fortunes of Yaakov and taken away the guilt of your people, pardoned all their sin, withdrawn all your wrath, turned your fierce anger. Restore us, God of our salvation. Renounce your displeasure with us. And you, are you to stay angry with us forever? Will your fury last through all generations? Won't you revive us again so your people can rejoice in you? Show us your grace, Adonai. Grant us your salvation. I am listening. What will God, Adonai, say? For he will speak peace to his people, to his holy ones, but only if they don't relapse into folly. His salvation is near for those who fear him so that the glory will be in our land. Grace and truth have met together. Justice and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs up from the earth and justice looks down from heaven. Adonai will also grant prosperity. Our land will yield its harvest. Justice will, will walk before him and make his footsteps a path. Amen. Amen. I like that. One thing I wanted to point out with this sin offering um, before we go to the next section is that you realize the different animals that had to be brought based on the level of the individual. So if it was a high priest, they had to bring a bull. If it was a leader, they had to bring another animal. And the they, goat. They had to bring the goat. And then same thing as a commoner, if they couldn't afford a goat or a lamb, then they can bring two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering, one for a burnt offering. But if they couldn't afford that, then they can bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. They don't put any oil on it or no frankincense on it because this is a sin offering. And then they can have the priest make atonement for him on that. So... There's consideration made for the circumstances of everybody within the Kehilat, the uh, congregation of Israel, the community. It wasn't just like, hey, you know, the rich people, they can get their sins forgiven, but the rest of us, we're in trouble. Everyone had a chance to participate, to remove that barrier and to draw near. And for the guilt offerings... At the last part of this portion, Adonai speaks to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued valued, excuse me, in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering, and then they make restitution for what they've done amiss in the holy thing and add a fifth to it and give to the priest. And I lost my train, uh, train of thought here for a second. So there we go. So once again, you're sitting there realizing you did something. You didn't do it on purpose, but you realize you made a, an error here. There's a provision in place there for you to be able to repair that breach, as it were, and to make things right between you and God. But there's a, you've got the ram, you've got to add a, a fifth to it. And then that, once you bring it to the priest, that will give you the atonement you need. So the Hebrew word for this offering is called the Asham offering. And the Asham offering is also, um, or is translated the guilt or the offense or trespass offering. So interestingly enough, the guilt offering was generally brought by the one who misappropriated property and um, whether it was of the sanctuary or someone else's and it generally required that 20% more mm -hmm. um, payment back as, as a form of repayment for the betrayal. So um, one person um, wrote that this particular, the property of the sanctuary who, uh, excuse me, it can be seen as property of the sanctuary. Who is who would ever be in doubt as to whether 
someone transgressed or a divine prohibition or one who had committed a betrayal against the Lord by swearing falsely to defraud a fellow man would not think twice about that type of offense. But I, what I thought about when I read that is um, how often do we not represent or think of ourselves as stewards or people under commission by Hashem when we commit an Hashem? Uh, um, offering that we are in essence making light of the name of God on us because, mm-hmm. and I'll give you an example. Okay, you you borrowed somebody's something or you you said you would re- loan it for a certain period of time, and you were supposed to return it. When you did not return the payment, you know whether it's debt or you know some again this is the guilt offering, right? And we I think many of us have been guilty of this. Whether something happened or etc. And now you have to pay the offense fee for it. And I'm not talking about credit cards. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about in in general, how often do we bear witness to my word being my bond and me going to not only my bond, but the bond of Hashem on me because I, I shouldn't have agreed to something that I could not really knowingly do. And so, in essence, you know, there's multiple scriptures that basically tell you not to be a, what is it, a, a lender, um, a, a borrower, a borrower. A borrower, excuse me, because you, you don't know for today, you only know for right now, you don't know for tomorrow, you know, and the the challenge is to, in that effect, that sometimes we are assigning both our name and Hashem's to things that we should not even be participating in at all. And so when the the time or the the moment for the guilt offering, um, the asham, appears, one must you know really reckon how did I participate in bringing this sin, this guilt, before Hashem, and and learn from it so that we don't continue to repeat it. And so I I think it's difficult in us for us in again this modern age because we're not fully always aware of our impact on things you know where we become such students of the industrial revolution where we're all participating in this chain-like effect of well i didn't initiate it it was just passed down to me you know like we're all part of the assembly line and we somehow have lost the act of owning not only our output but also the impact of our output in our world so even though the guilt can be visibly seen we're like am i responsible for that you know are you gonna point a finger back at me how did i contribute he passed it to me and it was my job to pass it to you but unless we start to recognize that the system itself is flawed because the ownership is not going to come from the higher-ups all the time. It really should come from the people. A whistleblower should be coming from the, the midst. And be like, you know what? I own up to it. I recognize as Hashem's representative, I can't continue to par- participate in this that is causing trespass or you know guilt. An example of this is you know, you know, car companies, for example, that knowingly push cars off the line that can catch on fire. Hmm. And they they act like that wasn't their fault. That is that is a that is a huge trespass, in terms of just the name of the company. But worse yet, if you as someone who represents Hashem, and you are called by His name, are knowingly participating in that. That's that's what this is really about. So the the Sham offering is one of the Hebrew words for sin, but it is to bear one's guilt and to pay back. Um, for misappropriated property. Just wanted to share that. Hmm. Well, I thank you for that. And just tying it together with the Hadashah portion in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 30, I'll read this quickly to hopefully put a bow on all of this and make some connections. So this is Yeshua speaking. So if you are offering your gift at the altar there, Remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So to recap, a lot of what we're saying is that our Heavenly Father knows our hearts and he knows that despite our best intentions and our willingness to try to do the right thing for the right reasons, there are going to be times where we mess up. Sometimes it's going to be, oops, I I misunderstood. You know, I mean, going back to the Mount Sinai experience, the congregation of Israel, the whole Kehillah, the whole community said, we will hear and we will do. They knew that their, their, their first step was going to be obedience and then they will understand as they continue to do it. So you're going to make mistakes as you trip up. That's part of the experience. Mm-hmm. Unintentionally. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, you don't deliberately go out of your way. Let's see what happens if I do this. But you're going to make your mistakes. You're going to grow through them. And there's a Mercy. process in place, right, mm-hmm. to say, okay, this is how you can draw back to me. This is how we can repair this situation. Keeping all of that in mind, we sometimes forget, just like Laverne was saying before, is that we take the errors that we could make before God as if that holds some supernatural weight over the rest of our lives and ignore the hurt that we do to our fellow humans. And sometimes that simple thing like, hey, you know what, I'm sorry that I stepped on your toe or... I didn't realize that the joke I was making was going to be horrifically offensive to you. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we think we're clever and that was a good joke. But to me, that brought up a whole lot of trauma in my life or that was just completely offensive or rude or racist or whatever. You can sit there and you know what? I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. I apologize for that. It wasn't my intention. It wasn't my plan. I didn't mean to do it. All of the above. But it doesn't mean that you didn't hurt somebody. And that carries just as much weight. And that's what Yeshua was talking about here in Matthew 5 is you coming back before God and you're saying, hey, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And then you remember like, oh, man, I upset my brother. I upset my sister. I kicked the neighbor's dog because I was in a rush. Whatever it was, fix that first. Because those little offenses, you know, what's the saying? The little foxes spoiled the vine. Those little ones can cause all kinds of contentions that can become ripple effects. Sim- simple case in point. Whether that neighbor goes around and talks to all their friends and goes, yeah, man, you know that guy? He went and kicked my dog, and then he went and he threw poison on the ground. And, you know, but now people are talking your name, and now you got five people that don't like you just because you didn't go and squash that one simple thing. Those, rather than let those little things breed contention and become huge issues... Squash it while you got it. You realize a mistake was made? Go back and say something. Maybe they forgive you. Maybe they don't. But make the effort. Mm -hmm. That's what our Heavenly Father is asking us to do is make that effort. Make the concerted effort to draw near, to repair the breach, to bridge that gap, that chasm, that divide, that error and sin and offense. Loves to throw walls up with and... Let's find a way to connect with one another in love and holiness. Amen. Um, in regards to the Hatat uh, um, offering and and now the Asham offering, which is number four and number five, um, these are uh, offerings that are generally done as a result of, whereas the first three were free will, meaning like as the soul leads me or as I desire to be drawn near or I want to be within these are offerings that's really they're all offerings but to a degree this is more an of a consequential offering so the hatat offering is the as a result of the consequence of having missed the mark so it is even though in some people's eyes they see the hatat as unintentional um some people would also say it could be intentional, meaning like um, the consequence of not fixing, for example, our small foxes mm. become these knowing offenses or knowing sins. Um, and, and, and in the words of Paul, the, you know, the, the, the thing that I desire not to do, 
mm-hmm. is the one that I continue to do anyway. So like, just because you did not intend for it to happen doesn't mean that you are not aware that, oh my goodness, I did it again. Mm-hmm. You know, so it can be conveyed in both lights. And so the sin offering, which is as a consequence of, is also one man's humility for correction and dependence on um, our creator to draw us back into oneness with him as well as with our fellow human being. Because you have to be humble to be aware of that that level of, oh, I I did do something. I I need to make this right. And um, the the trespass offering or the asham offering um, is also one of those as a result of, as a consequence for seeking atonement or forgiveness, um, because you now recognize by paying that restitution, I'm trying to not only um, make you whole, but I want to make right what I caused or I breached by what I um, I did and how I participated in it. So the, the additional fine of that additional fifth or that 20% is really my me seeking to ensure that I do not continue to offend or to maintain this pathway. So I, you know, to a degree you could say learn from this or paid to ensure that full restitution um, of both the breach of the loss of something or the, the harm that was caused can be recouped by the person that was that the offense was um, done to. And so one of the parallels I was thinking about um, that I did not bring up in, in respect to all five of these offerings is how do we see our relationship with Hashem, um, not only in terms of how we come and need these five offerings in our lives, but what has Hashem said that he is for us as those offerings, you know? You know, in in terms of the going backwards now, how has Hashem or Yeshua been our trespass offering? You know, how has he paid the additional 20%? And I go back to that story again with my grandmother for the wages of sin is death. He paid more than above. Having known no sin, he paid the sin price, redeemed me, and then still brought me not just to the to the, the family, but made me one of his children made me akin to his brother and sister. So that's a huge more than, you know, uh, trespass offering uh, in light of what was done at Calvary, what was done in the act of bearing my weight and bearing my guilt. And so sometimes when we're looking at me having to uh, do likewise in regards to some offense that I have committed to someone else, I I liken it to, you know, the scripture that says, how do you want God in heaven to um, forgive you your ought and you cannot forgive your brother his ought? What level of twistedness are you thinking <laughs> that somebody else has done so much more harm to you than the harm that you have done in sinning against the Heavenly Father and, and walking um, all of your, you know, your days, your iniquity being born in you and you bearing the, the, the look of it. Like, it's like, you know, being offensive literally in our early unknowing state to who God is in that level of sinfulness. That's what we were walking in. And he still gave before we even knew, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever would believe in him, you know, will believe, will believe. He did it before we knew, you know, because it says again that he was slaughtered. He gave himself as the offering before the foundation of the earth. So before the sin was even committed, before we even knew of what was to be offered for us, he gave all of this. He gave the hatat. He gave the trespass offering. He gave the meal offering. He gave the sin offering. He gave the burnt offering. He gave the peace offering. That's the level of offering that we have now to be drawn near. And when we look at ourselves in comparison to whatever weight or whatever trial that we're going through, and we look at 
However, the system is, and this is, I'll be honest, this has been some things that I, I still question, like how does God want us to assess what to do in these situations? I do see, however, both humility and I do see the hand of justice. Like, you know, there is a hand that provides grace, but there is still a very just God who who is the decider of right and wrong. And so when we look at our king, and I'll be honest, it sometimes is difficult because I no one wants the judgment. No one seeks judgment because judgment seems to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> And but a just king has to be both just, which is being willing to lay down a righteous right law, regardless of whether people are willingly or okay there or you know going along with it. And so, when we look at our half Torah portion, when we see King Saul, he's now the king, and he's like, you know. The Lord commanded you to rid us of rid us of Amalek, and you go in and you don't maintain a righteous judgment regarding what should be done as the Lord had committed this charge to you. You bear the guilt of the sin that now they are all participating in, and so in as much that we are all affected, exactly like you mentioned earlier, by the sin of one man's off, you know, hatat, missing of the mark, how much more so when you have, as a leader, taken part of, now led on millions astray by them now participating in disobeying God. So the level of justice that we are all seeking in the world really does come with a responsibility to be equally just in our relationships with both God and man because you can't be seeking a justice that you honestly don't participate in that you don't honestly desire for all to receive and if the Lord himself which is a decider of you know man and 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 knows the soul says to remove Amalek from the earth the just just um excuse me the just judge has spoken and it is to be done exactly as he has commanded. The full revelation of it all, not intentional or intentional, doesn't really matter. When you disobey the just judge, you have brought a heavy offense on both yourself and those who have followed in suit with you. And so that's where I, I do feel for any leader, and we have all been called to be leaders, you know? whether we're being called out as men and women being thrust into service for Hashem and we are called to labor in the vineyards and to harvest the souls that are reap and ready and, and just waiting to come into the fold, come into the kingdom of God. Or we have been called to be kings and priests of the Most High in ministry or in the marketplace each one of these roles do come with these requirements of maintaining the pattern of what Hashem has already offered unto us that we now have to be willing to be representatives of him in this world with other human beings. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a challenge. It's not an easy thing to walk, but it's, it is done just like that meal offering, you know, it's free will. And it is done by virtue of the Spirit of God. You know, the, Hashem, but Yeshua said, you know, the time has come that they that will worship him, and worship is not just singing and dancing, but they that worship him, meaning avoda, you know, commitment, work. Those that will work for him, work in along with him, will work along with him with, in spirit and in truth. And so that level of worship that we give our lives to now has a level of commitment that is difficult because you have some challenging people in your life that you sometimes are judging too harshly, but because you are just as much in process, in development as they are, and they may need the mercy that the Heavenly Father has outpoured to you for you to provide grace to them.
So in like kind, there's also on the opposite end of justice, a firm, decisive judge that needs to judge amongst men the things that are right and orderly and appropriate for the body that you've been commissioned and have authority over. And you will be held responsible when the whole goes the wrong way. And whether or not they are likened to favoring your decisive decision or not, you need to still lay down the law and maintain that decision because you are responsible if they all go astray. So you see how it's a challenge, but nonetheless, we have a righteous example that has given us the roadmap and a path and then a helper to ensure that we succeed. And when we falter, he has that free will offering that we can give to be brought back mercifully back to wholeness and made right. He'll make, as the scripture says, not all things are good, right? But all things work together for good for them that love the Lord and those that are called to according to his purpose. And so allowing yourself to be his representative is how he uses us in this world to work all of his plan towards total goodness, total, total shalom. And that's ultimately what I think everybody wants. Shalom. Shalom, y'all. Thank you all for listening to this podcast episode. I would like to encourage each one of you to continue the dialogue with us. Your feedback and support keeps us going. So please like, share, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to and dialogue with us. We're building out our social media programs and we're completing the website return.rest. We'll be online soon. So be in touch on those developments as they're coming up and continue the conversation with us. For the closing prayers, we will do the Etzkaim, known as the prayer to return. Etzkaim he, la makazikim ba, vetom mekeha, ushaderakea, dake noam, vakol nivoteka, shalom. Hashivenu adonai elakeka, venashuva kadesh. Kadesh Yamenu, Kadesh Yamenu Kekerem. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come. Renew our days as of old.